Hello, and welcome to Yuki Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alexa, Brianna, Nathan, and Yustan. The upcoming Tokyo Olympic Games has filled the world with both excitement and caution. With Ukraine marking its 14th appearance, we take a look at the current Olympic team, the history of Ukrainians in the Games, and Ukraine's bid to host the Olympic Games in the future. This and more on Zakhtoni Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So even though here in Sydney we're still in lockdown, uh, around the world, uh, uh, athletes and Olympians are getting ready and heading over to the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games, which are obviously taking place in 2021 due to the pandemic. So this week we thought we would take a look at Ukraina, what their achievements have been in the Olympics, um, how they functioned under the Soviet Union, a bit of the history there, and then go through basically Ukraina's time in the Olympics and finish with how the team is looking for this year and what events they're going to be uh, taking part in. So when we look at uh, the short and successful history of Ukraine, the Olympics since independence, uh, we need to start in 1994, which is when Ukraine first uh, had their first appearance as an independent nation. And this was at the Winter Olympics in Lillehammer in Norway. Now, this was their first appearance as a nation, but they had appeared before in 1992 as a former Soviet state under the unified team. Uh, which basically ran under the uh, flag of the Olympics. Since that time, Ukraina has won 37 gold medals, 31 silver medals, 60 bronze medals, giving them a total of 128 medals since their first appearance uh, in in the Olympics. Now, Brianna, do you have any other fun facts you can add to that? I can, actually. Interestingly... um... Ukraine sends more athletes to the summer games than to the winter games, um, which I don't know. I kind of thought, you know, doesn't Ukraine have snow? Wouldn't they be good at like the ice stuff? But I don't know. Could someone else shed light on that? That is strange. What's the climate like in Ukraine? Hmm. I think it's probably just more expensive to do winter sports, which is why it's easier to do like track and field, which is why they can afford to send a bigger team. Also, I think it's also part of the historical pedigree of, I guess, the Soviet Olympic program as well. Probably over a long time, there was a lot of focus on the summer sports. Um, But yeah, generally, for a country that does have pretty good snow, and as we'll talk about later, is even considered hosting the Winter Olympics, they tend to do a lot better in the Summer Olympics on average. I didn't know that. There you go. Um, But uh, in terms of their summer sports, their best performing sports are gymnastics uh, athletics and boxing, and they also do pretty well in wrestling, um, shooting, canoeing, swimming, and fencing. It's a pretty well-rounded team. Fencing, I thought was interesting. Um, what's probably, what's the biggest delegation that Ukraine has ever sent to the Olympics, Brianna? Um, Alexa, that would be Beijing in 2008. So just to give us an idea, in terms of the combined total medal haul for Ukraine in the Summer Olympic Games up until the most recent ones. We're looking at um, 120 medals and in the Winter Olympics we can count eight. 
So there's quite a big disparity there in terms of the totals. In saying that, though, yeah. Ukraine, even though we've only competed in the Olympics since 1994 with the Winter Olympics and 1996 for the Summer Olympics, Ukraine is already ranked in the top 30 countries to have won medals at the Olympics. So even yeah. though we have a short official history of competing, we are quite a strong team. And I think Ukraine were mm-hmm. more than easily punches above its weight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know, even compared to, say, um, just to give a bit of perspective, a country like Australia, which has now 500 medals in total in the Summer Olympics, um, that said, that, that 501, 501, I should say, is actually over a country that's been in the Olympics for over 100 years or since the very beginning. So from that perspective, it shows that it's quite a good result for such a, for I guess, a 30-year period or less than 30 years because they weren't, since they weren't performing as a nation until 94. And so whilst Ukraine has a relatively short independent history of competing in the Olympics, Ukrainians as a people have a long tradition of being able to compete in the Olympics and Ukrainians from Halachina were even eligible to compete during the very first modern Olympics, which were re-established in 1896 and held in Greece. And in 1900, they, the rest of Ukraine became eligible to compete when the Russian Empire uh, joined in. And since then, Ukrainians, because Ukrainian lands have been divided between various countries, Ukrainians have been eligible to compete as part of countries such as Czechoslovakia, Poland, Romania, and then, of course, the Soviet Union. And probably during the Soviet Union is what the Ukrainian Olympic Committee most kind of draws its historical um, sporting prowess from. And a good chunk of the Soviet team was always made up of Ukrainians. And the Ukrainian Olympic Committee recognizes about 146 medals won by residents of the then Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic as being medals won by Ukrainians. However, there were obviously ethnic Ukrainians living in other republics that represented the Soviet Union, and therefore there's probably more medals out there that ethnically Ukrainian people have won. So like Nathan mentioned earlier, Ukraine in 1992 competed as part of the unified team. And the reason that was, was because Ukraine gained its independence in 1991, there wasn't enough time for Ukraine to have its National Olympic Committee recognized by the International Olympic Organization. And so therefore they created a temporary unified team where the majority of the Soviet states competed under the neutral Olympic flag. Um, And then only in 1994 was Ukraine able to compete as an independent nation at the Lillehammer Olympic Games in Norway, where Ukraine won a gold medal and a bronze medal. And so that Olympics uh, will forever be known as the first time that the Ukrainian national anthem was played on the world stage at such a large event. And there's a funny story behind it was um, Ukraine won it at the one of the ice skating events. And when Ukraine won, no one actually had a copy of the Ukrainian national anthem on the premises. And so someone came up to the head of the Ukrainian delegation and was and said to him, how similar is your national anthem to the Russian national anthem? Because they wanted to do the medal ceremony and move on. 
and the Ukrainian delegate, the head of the Ukrainian delegation responded with, if you play it, I won't have a job tomorrow. That's how similar they are. So they had to delay the medal ceremony by 40 minutes so Ukraine could find a copy of its national anthem and bring it across the town. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, well, just what you've said is pretty in incredible. Like when you think about the logistics and the effort that goes into Olympic Games preparations and, and certainly a few years later in Sydney, there was much effort and documentary made around getting every... Um, every anthem queued and saved on a secure database because it's the first time I think they did it electronically, not from CD. So it's interesting to think that, you know, a few years earlier, they wouldn't have all the anthems on hand and have to get a bootleg copy from someone to play it. But I think it just sort of underscores um, how, I guess, how unique and new for a lot of diaspora Ukrainians, the idea of Ukraine actually competing and be able to cheer on Ukraine was at the time. Like even when we look I guess six years after Lillehammer and, the, and at least my experience in the Sydney Olympics, that was one of the first times I remember kind of very consciously Ukraine being in the public consciousness. And because the Olympics was so, followed so closely in Australia, I guess even the Olympic competitors from Ukraine were clo more closely followed. So I know a lot of people had more questions at work and school about Ukrainian team. That we, you're Ukrainian. This is the Ukrainian team. There's a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, brand recognition was sort of gone into public psyche because Ukraine did particularly well during that Olympics and future Olympics as we've talked about. But um, by then it was, it just shows you how even, even though a country could be independent, it does take a fair few years for that to solidify. The other, the other thing I guess that Alexa was alluding to is that there's a, there's a, a kind of, I guess, an urban legend, which I think for the most part, we couldn't find any official lines on, but it's something that's been talked about. And I think it's pretty reliable is that, um, especially in the early years, uh, there was a big focus on providing athletes incentives to win medals at the Olympics for Ukraine. And there was the idea that when you win a gold medal, you get an apartment in Kiev and um, and, and a car and, and a few other niceties because of the fact that you become Olympic champion. And so I know that Alex and I both saw some things, some things to validate this theory, but I guess you know, no one really admits to it as much. But I think, yeah... They came pretty close to admitting to it during one of the National Olympic Committee of Ukraine's documentary videos where they had the head of the delegation kind of giving the team a dressing down saying, you've won enough silver medals, win some gold medals now for Ukraine. And uh, it's because Ukraine had won 10 bronze, 10 silver and only three gold medals at the Sydney Olympics in Ukraine, which is one of their best showings at the olympics the only other one that's equal is 1996 in atlanta where ukraine also won 23 medals in total yeah and so yeah it was, it was obviously a very big showing in the summer olympics in the first two years it competed um which obviously culminated in really putting ukraine a lot more on the map i think not just from an olympic context but i think just globally for the western world um people just kind of had this idea about ukraine which was probably a very positive aspect for Ukraine from a soft political power perspective by having them participate in the Olympics and be quite successful. But I think as well, beyond the Olympics themselves, um, Ukraine has had a very strong history in both the Paralympics and more recently in, in the Invictus Games for um, for servicemen who were injured. Alexa, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Uh, yeah, so Ukraine, again, has only competed in the Paralympics since 1996, which were held in Atlanta after the regular Summer Olympics uh, were ended. And Ukraine has gone on to dominate the Paralympics. And in the last three iterations of the Paralympics, 
Ukraine has finished in the top five. And in 2016, Ukraine finished third with 117 medals in that one, uh, in the 2016 game. So they had 41 gold, 37 silver, and 39 bronze. And they've done pretty well in the Paralympics. Again, in the last three Winter Paralympics, Ukraine has ended in in the top fifth. And in 2006, Ukraine was also the third highest scoring team. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that um, Ukraine's Paralympic team is funded very well and they have a consistent source of funding which allows them to invest into their athletes and um, kind of build up the team, which is why like they've been able to do so well. And it's also become like a source of pride for Ukraine that like in a sense that their Paralympic team is technically more successful than their abled body team, if you put it one way. Yeah, true. I would also add to that that um, since, and if we're looking at the more recent example of um, Invictus, that Invictus was a really important thing because, uh, not to jump too much onto the political side, but since there's uh, the war happening in Ukraine right now, that also gave um, a kind of a sense of national pride to those soldiers who had sacrificed their limbs and uh, you know their their body parts for um ukraine's freedom so uh kind of gave that extra bit of support towards the veterans of this new and ongoing conflict and i thought that that one's also important as well i'd say probably the most political medal ukraine's ever won was the gold medal during the sochi winter olympics in russia which was won during the occupation of crimea and the start of the war in donbass yeah, and for those just for a bit of background, I mean, really, uh, in in some ways, it was happening side by side, the opening ceremony of Sochi, the Olympic Games in Russia, and then, you know, uh, the invasion was kind of taking a lot of, I guess, picking up steam at that time. So, um, yeah, it was a very complex political issue, but that made that gold medal even more important. So we've kind of talked already about the idea that uh, Ukraine's Olympic performance in the years since independence have been quite in, quite a good PR uh, exercise for uh, both, obviously, for other countries to recognise Ukraine and the Ukraine and Ukraine's culture and achievements, but also it's worked to rally, uh, I guess, Ukrainians around their own athletes and and you know obviously it's been a strong source of national pride. Uh, another thing that obviously. Uh, related to the Olympics that can kind of unify a country and and achieve these sort of goals is actually hosting an Olympics. Um, And certainly uh, for a very long time, I think since it was an independent country, I think there's been some people dreaming about Ukraine hosting an Olympics relatively quickly. Um, And there's been a few more serious bids that we'll cover off in in just a moment. But um, it's clear that also Ukraine has, in the time since it's been independent, uh, hosted, uh, done a very successful job in things like Eurovision and hosted two Eurovision tournaments um, in in Ukraine. And they've also uh, had the opportunity to host the Euro 2012 um, competition and hosted successfully as well. So I think all these sort of in a modern in modern day politics and modern day brand building for countries, these sort of big events can be quite an important way to, you know, I guess, improve the standing or perception of your country. So just after those uh, those successful European Euro 2012 matches, there was a suggestion um, from the government of Ukraine about potentially bidding for the 2022 Winter Olympics and doing it in Lviv and uh, Volovets. Um, and so, and also uh, Tusovets for some of the alpine skiing 
parts of it. And generally, this is quite common when it comes to the Winter Olympics. You tend to have a city that has some winter venues and then you have, I guess, a satellite area that might be in the mountains that hosts some of the mountain alpine events. So, um, you know, Calgary had Canmore, Vancouver had Whistler. Um, so often this is the idea that's designed around hosting these sort of Winter Olympics. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Winter Olympics aren't necessarily the most successful <laughs> type of um uh, I guess, Olympics in terms of, I guess, Ukraine's success in terms of medals. But obviously it was seen as a, a, an amazing opportunity to, um, I guess, elevate Ukraine's standing in the world and, and show themselves as a competent country for trade and commerce and, and networking and, and relationships with other nations. You know, looking back just briefly, if you think about the countries that have hosted sort of in the last 20 years, there's definitely been that process of using an Olympic Games to try and really elevate the country or unify the country internally, even around the, its own perception of its own nationality. And even countries as established as Australia and Canada, um, you would see happen in the Sydney Olympics, there was definitely a consolidation around national pride and, and, and a, I guess, understanding of oneself as a country became a bit more matured and, and everyone was a bit more contented with how we were perceived around the world. Canada had a very similar experience with the Vancouver Games, um, maybe earlier with the Calgary Games, but definitely with Vancouver, where it felt um, a unification that came and kind of reset the, I guess, unified the country for that new new stage of its life. Um, and obviously that was one of the goals that was coming here. So um, unfortunately the bid wasn't successful. They withdrew the bid a little bit earlier than the final bid time. Um, primarily this was due to costs. So I think one of the reasons that you view, I guess one of the reasons Ukraine has been looking at the Winter Olympics is traditionally the Winter Olympics tended to be cheaper. Though I guess Sochi in Russia blew that one out of the water and it was the most expensive Olympics period. Um, but generally the Winter Olympics tend to be a bit cheaper. And so the idea was that this could be a way for Ukraine to to be able to host the Olympics. But the, the, the next plan was and is to uh, look at hosting the 2030 Winter Olympics in Lviv and the determination of that or I guess the final vote from the IOC on that will be in 2023. Uh, so that bid is still alive. But I guess I wanted to uh, I guess turn to our to, to all of us and sort of you know, ask what people think about the idea of a winter bid. And I think for me personally, I think because the Olympic uh, Ukraine has such a better um, success rate with the, the Summer Olympics, I, I would still think that maybe a Summer Olympics in Kiev might be a more reasonable thing for the country to focus on than maybe a Winter Olympics. But I'm, I'm curious everyone's thoughts on Ukraine bidding in the Olympics and whether it's a waste of money, whether it's the right thing to do and, and which one would make sense the most. I think it's a big risk, to be honest, and only because countries like Australia, we've managed to make use of our Olympic facilities since then. Um, but you, I mean, you just look on online and see how many uh, Olympic facilities, whether it's the bobsled tracks in, I'm pretty sure Germany, they don't use anymore, or it's the, um, all the stadiums and the swimming uh, centers from Greece um, that cause massive problems once they spent all that money and then they just lie basically in ruins. So I think on the one hand, I, th I do see the potential for it um, being important for tourism um, and or obviously post-COVID, um, but I, I just think there's a big risk that these um, these facilities won't be utilised afterwards and they'll just fall into disrepair and become a massive waste of money. Yeah, I would agree with Nathan in that um, 
pretty much only Australia is uh, a real contender for uh, using their facilities after their Olympic Games. So, like Nathan said, it's pretty much uh, a huge waste of money after the whole event happens. But there is like the uh, potential for it to be used as more like a training facility afterwards. But there's always the risk of uh, someone trying to run it afterwards, really. Yeah, I think the the training thing is very important. So, like, uh, definitely after the Calgary Olympics for Canada, the training, the facilities that were built for the Canada, uh, for that Olympic Games were used literally up until Vancouver to train a whole generation of winter athletes. Um, and I think that's the same that can be said for the now in Vancouver. <laughs> um, the, the, that level of modern venue is being used in the same way. Um, I agree that that could be a challenge. And I think corruption in general has, has really left a bad stain on the like the last several big Olympic Games. Um, and that's that's kind of not the examples that we would want to follow. I mean, I think London and, and Sydney are probably better examples of sustainable temporary venue work and doing things so that they're actually got a post-legacy plan to achieve things. But um, what about in terms of just the uh, potential... Um, I guess, nation building, unification and overall global recognition it could bring. Does anyone think that's worth the money? See, I agree with you there, you stand. I feel Ukraine would be better placed to bid for the Summer Olympics only because A, Ukraine would do a lot better um, in the Summer Olympics and you'd get more of that national pride. While I feel hosting a Winter Olympics, it'd be a lot of money plowed into it. And I don't think Ukrainians would see a lot of return because I don't think, like the athletes obviously were not a very strong winter Olympic country. And like considering London, you can draw off the experience of building temporary or you're all building facilities, but with uh, the ability to, to expand them for major events like London did with its main like athletic stadium in the center of London. They built a smaller stadium, which um, with then a temporary extension on top of it for the uh, period of the olympics yeah and, and look i think part of that as well you're right i think these days as well as you can see there's less and less of uh the ioc is kind of having a bit of a crisis that the olympics have got too big and too expensive and very few cities are wanting to to host um at this point and i think that's why as much as it might be it might seem counterintuitive for this to be a time for ukraine to consider it i think also there's an opportunity at the moment where countries are kind of host cities are kind of working to find compromises with the IOC. And so there are a lot of the things that would never be considered in bid contracts in previous years are being allowed to happen. Like Milano Cortina is a two-city bid. Um, there's situations where they've already awarded the 2024 and the 2028 Olympics to LA and Paris because both were, were bidding for 2024 and there was no other bid. So they just decided to split it. The other bids kind of fell apart. Um, so there's an opportunity here to kind of be part of the rescaling of the Olympics and potentially reworking how they work. And the IOC has definitely talked about doubling down on temporary venues and things like that to make things a little bit more achievable. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, it'll be a watch this space. If we hear anything more, we'll, we'll let you know. But yeah, well, um, it's obviously a controversial thing to, to be focused on, but sometimes these are the things that, you know, help a, help a country unify themselves and find their identity. So it can be important. 
And there are rumors that Ukraine is considering to do a joint bid for the 2030 Olympics. Like there are rumors that um, Ukraine's looking to partner with Ukraine and Lithuania to spread the cost of the Olympics and sort of build off that Lublin triangle that they've been building between the three countries. So it might be a sort of a geopolitical play for Ukraine to further integrate with the West. Yeah, and I think these are the sort of sustainable measures that are going to be part of our Olympic makeup in the next decade and beyond. So since we're turning to modern day Olympics, let's have a look at the uh, Olympic team that is going from Ukraine to Tokyo. So the team currently, as it stands, it consists of 156 uh, competitors and they'll be competing in uh, 20 different sports. So they'll be competing, and here's the list. They'll be doing archery, artistic swimming, athletics, badminton, boxing, canoeing, cycling, diving, equestrian, fencing, gymnastics, judo, karate, modern pentathlon, rowing, shooting, swimming, table tennis, regular tennis, triathlon, weightlifting, and wrestling. And that's where the 156 come from. And the group or the category out of all of these sports that has the most athletes is actually in the athletic section. There's actually 44 just for athletics alone. And then second one would come uh, in gymnastics where they're sending 14. Ukraine, yeah, so uh, thought... one, two, three, four, six top medal scorers are all gymnasts. That makes sense. So what other sports, I was going to ask, do you think Ukraine is going to see the most success in apart from gymnastics? We do all right in canoeing. <laughs> canoeing? Yeah, maybe. I was thinking weightlifting. But... Weightlifting and boxing. Because um, you have like the Klitschkov brothers. You have, um, I think his name is Yusik. Hmm. So I were pretty good in those two uh, fields. Yeah, it should be interesting. Um, I was very interested to hear when you mentioned before, Alexa, that... Um, uh, Ukraine apparently is very good at fencing. I wasn't expecting that. So that's the one I'm going to be looking out for when we're doing, uh, when I'm going to be watching the Olympics. Um, now, on top of that, because this, um, the COVID situation isn't really any better since the last year, they've actually announced that there are going to be a number of uh, different restrictions. Brianna, do you want to briefly touch on what those uh, changes are? Yeah, no worries. So actually around 80% of people in Japan don't want the Olympics to go ahead and only about 15% of the population are fully vaccinated. So it's interesting to see that, you know, the, the, the very, the people in the actual country don't really feel like the, the, the games should be going ahead. It's a very interesting point there, Brianna, that this will probably be the first Olympics where the host country doesn't want to host like its population doesn't want to host it and that yeah. the stadiums will most likely be empty or have very few spectators and it makes you wonder what the performances like actual sporting performances will be like without a crowd without the atmosphere um it's going to be a very different olympics even watching it online and and watching it on television do you reckon they'll have a cheer track instead you know how they have a laugh track for sitcoms they'll have a cheer track yeah like potentially in the soccer yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know what would be worse if you were an athlete and you had, mm. um, you know, if you only were allowed to have 10,000 spectators or 50% capacity of the venue, you know, sure, they're in there, but they're not allowed to be chanting or singing. The only way that they can show their support would be 
by clapping their hands. So mm-hmm. that's on, on one hand, you know, the atmosphere is a little bit wrecked. But then on the other, if you have no spectators at all, just other officials and other athletes, like what's worse? Well, look, I, I mean, feel a quiet stadium would be very jarring. <laughs> a quiet stadium would be very jarring. But in terms of what you're describing, Briana, I think if any country was going to do a polite clapping Olympics, I think Japan's probably the one to do it. It's, it probably seems the most cultural one point of all the countries. Like a Brazilian Olympics potentially would would be wrong, but you know maybe Japanese could pull it off because they are they tend to be quite reserved and polite even when they're cheering on success. They should do it like in the I, American uh, baseball where they put up uh, just cardboard cutouts of random people and like they just have them <laughs> fill the stadium. Well, I know in hey, the bas- to attend the Olympics as a cutout. <laughs> I know in the basketball, like in the NBA, they had Microsoft Teams did like Microsoft did like this promotion where they had people live on Teams. So they had these massive screens in the audience area, and all these like faces on Teams, people watching the game. So yeah, it's been some crazy things uh, since it's all since all the COVID stuff has started. But yeah, certainly it's it raises some real questions. Um, this especially with the current COVID situation in Japan, you, you do wonder. If there's if it's reasonable to continue with this, but it, by all measures, it seems like it's not going away. That it is going to start in a few weeks, um, and they'll go ahead regardless of what's happening. Maybe to finish on a lighter note, these these games are actually going to be including some new events. So they're actually going to see the inclusion of something called 3 by 3 basketball, which is just three people on each team, freestyle BMX, which is like the stunts, kind of like a skateboard park, but with BMX, Madison cycling, which is uh, like relay cycling. And there's also going to be uh, the returning of baseball, softball, and also the inclusion of karate, sport climbing, surfing, and skateboarding as well. So even though there's that negative side, I think it's also good to see there's actually going to be a bit of an interesting new take uh, when it comes to some of the new sports. In the news this week, in a move to protect the Ukrainian ethnic minority in Russia, the Ukrainian World Congress was compelled to suspend membership of all Ukrainian organizations and UWC leaders in Russia. The move comes after Vladimir Putin enacted draconian laws that impose criminal sanctions on Russian citizens for associating with undesirable organizations. Ukraine's constitutional court has ruled that the country's language law is constitutional. The decision was in relation to an appeal of 51 lawmakers who were attempting to have the law struck down. The language law first entered into force on July 16, 2019, and has a staggered implementation. The Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research has renamed the Kiev Peninsula to Kiev Peninsula to reflect the correct Ukrainian spelling. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Report content.